with me and turn to Exodus 34. While you're turning there, I was listening to Pastor Wall as he was blathering on and on a moment ago, and, uh, and I thought to myself this, how nice it is to be pastor of a church where people can joke with one another and kid a little bit. You know what that's like? It's like a gigantic family, okay? It's really like a, a big family where people know each other well enough to know that they're not gonna get offended and hurt feelings and all that kind of thing. Because even though the church has grown, it's my desire to have our church like a family so that uh, you get together with your relatives. It's not always a formal occasion. In fact, probably isn't very much of a formal occasion at all. And I think there's some real health to that, remembering that when you come to the Lord's house, you're coming to meet together, not just with the Lord, but with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think I mentioned the other Wednesday night about how sometimes we get into little tiffs with our brothers. Those of us who had brothers growing up, uh, we would get into a tiff with our brother. But you know what? At the end of the day, he's still my brother, and I still stand up for him, and on and on that stuff goes. Well, tonight I want to do something, uh, change topics just a little bit, and we're, we're covering Pastor Morris and I are sharing kind of a journey through what we call the Christian vir virtues. But I wanted to cover one tonight that I think is vital because it has become exceedingly rare in our culture. And I hate to say it this way, but it's true. Exceedingly rare in Christian culture as well. Too much of the world has rubbed off on the church and the hearts and attitudes and the way we approach things, those things have all rubbed off on the church. And, and I'm going to talk about the Christian virtue of grace, and by that I mean graciousness in the way you conduct yourself as a person, okay? And we're gonna look at a couple words, one Old Testament word and a couple New Testament words to get a definition of what that is, but I want to look at the ultimate example of someone who is gracious. So your Bible is open to Exodus 34. Begin with me at verse number one. Exodus 34 and verse one. The Bible says, and the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tablets of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. So you say, Pastor, what is this? Well, you remember Moses came down from the mount. He was really frustrated with the actions of the children of Israel, and so he smashed the Ten Commandments. He kind of had a, what we might call a hissy fit, and he smashed the Ten Commandments, and then, uh, then it was all bad because they were broken. The Ten Commandments, literally, <laughs> the tables of the law, were broken, but God said, okay, we're going to write this again. We're going to write this again. Now, I want you to notice this then in the second writing of the Ten Commandments is the background for what you're about to see. You say, what are the Ten Commandments? They are the law of God. They are a summary of God's moral principles. They are not everything that God expects, but they are the required law of God. And some time ago I talked at length about the various Ten Commandments. So here we're going to have the second writing of the tables of the law, the Ten Commandments. Verse number two. And be ready in the morning, come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither shall any man <coughs> be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor the herds feed before the mount. In other words, the Mount Sinai at this point was going to be a meeting place between God and Moses, and that's it. Everyone else was to keep their distance from the mount. <coughs> so the Bible says in verse number four, and he hewed 
two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. Verse number five, I think, is significant. It's not my text, but it'll, it'll tie in in a moment. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now, now pause with me for a moment. He descended in the cloud and he stood with them, with him there. Now, now wait a minute, Pastor Monty. The, uh, God the Father, God is the Spirit. Correct. But who do you think this is? It is Jesus. Absolutely is Jesus. And by the way, do you find it interesting? He descended in a cloud. Okay, that is kind of a foreshadowing of the second coming. But this is Jesus Christ. And I, I think I made reference recently to 1 Samuel chapter 3 where Samuel kept hearing a voice, and then the Bible says the voice stood by the bed of Samuel. Who is that? It wasn't just a voice, it was the Lord himself. And I believe sometimes, not every time, but I believe sometimes in the Old Testament when the Bible says the word of the Lord came unto so-and-so. Who is the word of the Lord? That's Jesus. Could it be that he came personally? I believe so. I firmly believe so. I think there are more appearances of Christ in his pre-incarnate form in the Old Testament than we give credit to. And I certainly think this is one of them because the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Okay, so this was very, very important. By the way, back up for a moment. What did we say last Sunday? Put Connect dots with scripture for a moment. What did we say last Sunday? The way the Lord engages in the battle is proclamation. Remember that from Isaiah 61, Luke chapter 4, we looked at that. What is a proclamation of? That he is God the Son, and the Son of God, and that he is Messiah. That is part and parcel with the message. And then Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 61, he would, was anointed to preach the gospel. We went into all of that last Sunday. So here, interestingly enough, the Lord, I believe Jesus, passed by before him and proclaimed. Now here are the words. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. We're going to look into all of that briefly tonight. But I want you to notice something, verse number six. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, and what's the next word? Gracious. Now, why is that striking to me? Why is that passage striking? Because I want you to think about this. In that moment, the Lord re-inscribed on the new tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law of God. Here in the very setting of the giving of the law, the Lord, Jesus himself, appears and he declares himself to be gracious. In the middle of law, we find grace. And grace is actually a characteristic of who God is. It is one of God's attributes. It is one of the things that make God who he is. And I think what he was saying to Moses is, here are 10 commandments. And these Ten Commandments, you all better keep these Ten Commandments. Here are Ten Commandments. But remember something. I am fundamentally gracious. 
in the midst of the pressure that would come upon Moses to keep the Ten Commandments, to convey them to the people and encourage the people to keep the Ten Commandments, God says this, fundamentally I am gracious. Never forget that about God. In proclaiming who he is, one of the characteristics he gave was the characteristic of grace. Now look at your lesson introduction. The words grace and gracious in Scripture focus on the character of God and his expectation of man. In regard to man, grace and gracious are bucket terms that describe the blending of various Christian characteristics into a reliable default attitude. If you want to underline something, underline the word attitude. Gracious is an attitude, and it is something that is consistent. It is a default attitude that should consistently manifest in behavior. So pause there for a moment. When we say the Lord is gracious, that is who he is. But it is manifest in consistently gracious behavior. Some of that was listed for us in the passage, and we'll break that down after a while. The current state of affairs is especially sad in a world desperate, oh, pardon me, I missed, a, missed an important sentence. Unfortunately, the pugnacious internet and social media culture has influenced many Christians to be less gracious and more confrontational. The current state of affairs is especially sad in a world desperate to see something different, genuine Christian grace. Now, I believe this, that quite possibly the greatest threat to your Christian life is the internet. I really believe that. I, I probably would not have said that five years ago. The greatest threat to your Christian life is social media. It is things that are connected to that that are slowly changing you if you're too tied and that's the biggest deal. You say, Pastor Monty, if you had one enemy to fight, what would you fight, that? I see it every day because it is so subtle in the way that it transforms Christians. Ah, Pastor Martin, I think the biggest threat is cigarettes. <laughs> I think you'd be wrong. Social media and internet, and with the, uh, the burgeoning AI movement, has the ability to fundamentally change the way people think, and thereby the way people act. And one of the things in society that has become very common is the high level of anger in the society in which we live. I don't have to ask you to raise your hands. Probably you could think of instance after instance where something very small rose very rapidly to extreme angst. Well, Pastor Monty, you know, I've seen that happen a few times, but, uh, but uh, I'll tell you, I'm not, I'm not gonna, uh, you know, that's not me, okay? But have we changed the way we communicate with one another? I purposely, in the lesson, use the word communicate. I'm not just talking about face-to-face -face speech, which I believe has become more aggressive even among Christians. I'm talking about every form of communication where somehow people feel a freedom to type things aggressively that they may not say aggressively, and it is because they have spent too much time being trained by social media to be controversial, to be on edge, and to be confrontational. I firmly believe this. We've, we've seen this happen. We talk about sometimes common courtesy. That is really lacking in our day and time. Now, there are other, there are other things that add to this, okay? The, the fact that people feel like they're under so much pressure today. But where does that pressure come from? 
sometimes from overindulgence in the internet and social media. So one of the things that I determined I would do in my time management thing, and I'm, I'll just mention it now, in my time management thing is to tame my phone. I'm sick of it. I'm utterly sick of it. Now, uh, if you have an iPhone, then you have this feature where you can put a focus on the phone and screen everything. Are you all aware of that? You're not aware of it. Okay, well, I just made you aware of it. So you can screen everything. I'm doing that consistently. The last three days, I've, Pastor Monty, screening my calls. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> I am. Because I can't be interrupted when I'm studying the Bible. I, and, and I find it irresistible. If my phone rings, pings, or bings, I find it irresistible to deal with that right now. And so part of time management is being able to set some boundaries that limit exposure to certain things. That, by the way, is legitimate for every person in the world. We came to the conclusion a few years ago that every person in the world should be immediately accessible to us. That is simply not the case, okay? People have to have their time to concentrate, uh, maybe to pray, maybe to read their Bible, maybe to study, or maybe to do their job, if, uh, any, any area of work that is necessary. And so what has happened, though, is this. Uh, people lack graciousness today. And you even see it in Christian people, in the way people get angry very quickly, in the way they talk to others, or in the way they communicate online. So I want to return us back in our thinking to becoming gracious in our character so that it flows out of us on a natural basis. Now, I hear right now an argument forming in some people's minds. Ah, Pastor Monty, that sounds good, but you just don't understand I have a short fuse. Look at me. If you have a short fuse, you need to grow up and get over it. In all seriousness, do not pretend you were born that way. Every habit that we have is a habit that we personally establish, and it is a habit that we can change and break. Some of them, if they are long-term, are more difficult to change than others, but for you to say, I cannot change this habit, or I cannot change that habit, or I cannot change this habitual response, or that habitual response, is to deny scripture. Because the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And if I am willing to make changes as I yield to the Holy Spirit, my, my attitude and my heart, even my temper, can change. And it is no secret, because Pastor Morris has talked about this numerous times, that at one time he had a temper. Did you know, by the way, at one time Pastor Morris's hair was red? Yeah, that's why it's so beautifully white now. But when, back when his hair was red, he had a temper which just proves redheads are hotheads. But anyway, uh, no, I, I'm just joking about that. I'm sure I offended somebody. Um, let's look at some definitions. Let's quit offending and look at some definitions. A definition of graciousness from the Bible, okay? I'm giving you a word, the Hebrew word, and you kind of, to pronounce it, it's pronounced hen, but it's like you're clearing your throat. Hen, something like that, is the Hebrew word, not a hard K in that word. The key idea is granting goodness to another out of love, not because someone deserves it. Now, I've given the reference Exodus 34 verse 6. Break that down again. Granting goodness to another out of love and not because someone deserves it. You see, we very much trained in our thinking to only grant something good if someone has earned it. But in the case of graciousness, I am sometimes good to people who have not earned it. Who does that remind you of? Jesus Christ. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies with God, 
Christ died for us. And so the key idea is granting goodness to another out of love. It is treating someone with kindness when they don't deserve it. It is responding to someone with kindness when they don't deserve it. Grace induces a favorable response. This is all contained in the Hebrew word. A response that draws people rather than repels them. It speaks of beauty and attractiveness in speech and bearing. That should say bearing. Proverbs 3.22 talks about an ornament of grace. Well, what is an ornament? An ornament's like a necklace, okay? So if you wear a necklace, that ornament is, you picked it out because it's attractive to you. So you're wearing this necklace that's attractive, but it's also attractive to someone else because you think, oh, people will like my necklace. And so the ladies all get together and say, oh, I love your brand new necklace. What is that? It's appealing, okay? That is why it's referred to, an ornament can be referred to as an ornament of grace. Why? Because it's something of beauty and attractiveness. That's contained in the Hebrew word. Psalm 45, verse two, grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. What is that speaking of? My communication is gracious. Now listen, that does not mean that it cannot be firm because sometimes it needs to be firm. But always and in every circumstance, we can use grace in the way we communicate with one another. Grace also involves someone of a higher status. This is kind of another shade of meaning to the word in Hebrew. Grace also involves someone of a higher status showing favor to someone of a lower status. This usage appears over 40 times in the Old Testament. Example, uh, Genesis 39, verse 4, Joseph found grace in Potiphar's sight. Okay, Potiphar was higher. He was just right under the Pharaoh in that kingdom. Potiphar was high up, but Joseph found grace. Joseph, who was he? He was a Hebrew slave. He found grace in Potiphar's eyes. So that is someone in a higher position showing kindness or favor to someone in a lower position. Now let me be clear when I state this for Christians. Christians treat people equally. If you have an attitude that because someone has a service job that they are somehow lower and subservient to you, you have a wrong attitude. Well, Pastor Monty, I gave that waitress a piece of my mind. How ridiculous. What a horrible testimony. Why, and, and, and she's just a waitress. She's a soul for whom Christ died. Understand something about this. God looks at us as all equally sinful. We're sinners before him. And all of us are people for whom Christ died. And it's really time for Christians to treat not just each other that way, but other people that way as well. So we don't look at someone, but, but the word grace carries the idea of a person in authority shows special favor to someone in a lower position that can be used as grace. I'm just giving you nuances of the Hebrew word. What is the Greek word? We're more familiar with the word charis for grace, but shanan is also used. The Greek word for grace basically means to show favor, kindness, and compassion. It can also mean winsome and attractive. So Luke 4, which is where we preached on Sunday morning, Luke 4, 22, and all wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Jesus spoke with authority. We know that from another passage, right? He spoke with authority. They marveled at him because he was one that spoke with authority. But he also spoke with incredible grace. 
In other words, his message was not unnecessarily grating. Now, now, when Jesus said, this day have you this, this scripture fulfilled in your ears, and when he gave two examples of Jews having rejected major prophets and of Gentiles having received them, that kind of turned their heart. We understand that. But there was nothing initially grating. Let me pause here for a moment. The gospel carries its own offense. I don't need to be purposefully offensive to people when I'm giving them the gospel. Do you understand? I don't need to be that way. My neighbors should all know me as gracious. Ah, Pastor Monty, I, except for the neighbor that, that uh, their leaves blow into my yard. <laughs> all of my neighbors should know me as gracious. Sometimes that's hard because we live in, we live, some of us live close to our neighbors and sometimes it's a little too close. But our grace involves how we respond to people. It means to show favor, kindness, and compassion. It also means to be winsome or attractive in our speech. Now, I've given you Hebrew Greek. I'm also going to give you English because in the King James Bible, it has a certain, uh, certain nuance of meaning, okay? So the King James Bible, based upon the Hebrew and Greek, and the English carries with it a nuance of meaning. It means this, favorable, kind, friendly, as in the sentence, we gave him a gracious reception, or we welcomed him graciously. When you use the word gracious, it puts into your mind all of those concepts. Friendliness, it puts into your mind, uh, perhaps in some, in some ways, compassion. It puts a favorable response. When someone is said to be gracious, that is a positive and favorable thing. Look at point B. Benevolent, merciful, forgiving. Now that's another concept very closely associated with graciousness. Forgiving as in thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful. And notice that the words mercy and grace, I'll get into this in a little further down, they're often paired together in scripture, okay? Back in your mind in Exodus 34, who is God? God in the person of Christ, giving the Ten Commandments proclaimed his name as gracious. Now, there are some theologians who will say something like this. We, it's typical to be taught this in theology. Pastor Mahdi, the number one attribute of God is his holiness. They teach that. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Because God is infinite, his holiness is perfect. Well, but Pastor Mahdi, that's his number one attribute. Where's that in the Bible? God is infinitely holy, listen to what I'm about to say, he is infinitely gracious. He can't get any more holy because he's as holy as holy can be. He can't get any more gracious because he is as gracious as gracious can be. When you put the infinity of God, the, the, the fact that he is eternal and infinite and perfect, and you think about the perfections of God, there is not one attribute of God that controls the others. I've, I, in, in basic theology class, I marveled at that idea. God is God. He is perfect in all of his attributes. He does not require one attribute to control another attribute, or that attribute's gonna get out of control. He is God. He is perfect in his attributes. And so God chose in the giving of the law to declare that he was gracious. So uh, the definition from the languages of the Bible, now from the character of God. So you're looking at Exodus 34. I read it a moment ago. I want to just cover a few points through this to give you an idea of the things that go along with graciousness. Because grace involves a lot of different ideas. Favor, 
benevolent, winsome, attractive. We've talked about all those things from the word itself. So merciful, merciful. God is a God of grace. He is merciful. Mercy and grace are often found together, two sides of the same coin. The merciful withholds punishment when it may be deserved. The gracious grants favor when it is not deserved. Now notice this. Neither one of these principles operates in a vacuum of neutrality. So when, when is grace given? Grace is given to the undeserving. That's why, by the way, for by grace are ye saved through faith. What, what do you mean? I don't deserve salvation. Salvation is wholly of God's grace. I do nothing to earn salvation. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, salvation, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Newsflash, sinner, all of us included in that statement. Newsflash, sinner, God doesn't owe you anything. Doesn't owe you anything. Not one thing. Newsflash, Christian, God doesn't owe you anything. Everything that comes our way comes by the grace of God. Salvation is by the grace of God. Answered prayer is by the grace of God. There is no way that you as a human being can ever place God in the position where he owes you something. Now I'll tell you this, God will keep his promises. But every one of his promises is given how? Based on his grace. There is never an obligation to man. That speaks of the unbelievable graciousness of God. And the Bible says that we were enemies with God, and while we were yet sinners at enmity with God, Christ died for us. You want to talk about infinite grace, that grace is found in the person of Christ. So it, it often is paired with merciful. Gracious, of course, I've been talking about that for the most lesson, so that check the section above. Long-suffering. So another characteristic of God's graciousness that is paired with the word mercy and grace is the word long-suffering. What does that mean? Patient, enduring of wrongs and personal slights. That's part of being gracious. Pastor Monty, I'm just not going to put up with that. You know, there are some things you could just dismiss, little things. I know there's other things you have to deal with. But I want you to ask yourself this question. How much does God put up with out of you? When you really get to know yourself and you really read the Bible, you understand God is very gracious. And part of his graciousness is long-suffering. Because there's been many times when I felt, you know, I, I, the Lord should have probably stamped me out. Actually, I think this. Lord, you should have stamped so-and-so out. Stomp him out. <laughs> he doesn't do that because he's long-suffering. Can I give you the grand example of this? The nation of Israel. If you will read the torrid and sordid history of the nation of Israel as presented in the Bible, the climax of their evil being the, the rejection and crucifixion of their own Messiah and yet God says, I'm not done with you. There's a future yet for Israel, plain in the prophets. We'll talk about that Sunday morning. There's a future yet for Israel. And I want you to hear something, folks. That speaks of God's grace because they crucified their Messiah. They crucified the Son of God. They crucified God the Son. And you'd think, well, Pastor Monty, there's going to be, God's just done with those people. No, he's long-suffering. 
Sometimes we lose patience with people just that fast, don't we? Part of being gracious, it is in this, in this context put together with the idea of long-suffering. Then, of course, it says there in the passage, uh, Exodus 34 speaks of the goodness of God. That's uh, his beneficence, his kindness. It also, by the way, speaks of truth, truth. You say, well, Pastor Monty, you know, in, in graciousness, I overlook truth. No, you'd be wrong there. Gracious people don't overlook truth. Gracious people tell the truth, listen carefully, but they speak the truth in love. So one of the things that turns me off in life is rude behavior. It's, it's horrible, rude behavior. I don't like it at all. Now, do I sometimes have to tell people hard truth? I do. But I can do so in a manner that shows a heart of love and of grace. I can do so under control. That's graciousness. God never fudges on the truth, but God presents it to us in a gracious way. I think about the woman taken in adultery. What did he say? He said, go and sin no more. It's called grace. It's called grace. Forgiving, number six on the back page, forgiving. A gracious person forgives easily. If you hold a list of slights, and I'm Pastor Monty, I'm keeping score. If you do that, you're not gracious. A gracious person does not keep score. A gracious person forgives and forgives easily. By the way, does not forgive in a judicial manner. I, I'll tell you, I, I, I had a, there was a, a man who's a very astute Bible scholar as a profession. He is a, a professor. I preached one time on the topic of forgiveness, and he came up to me afterwards. He was just irritated. And this guy could never hide his irritation, which, by the way, gracious people can hide their irritation. I am a professional at it. Gracious people can hide their irritation. And, and he came up and he said, well, he said, I had a conflict with my sister many, many years ago. We haven't spoken since. And I, and he's a Bible, Bible professor. He said, I don't have to forgive her until she comes up and officially asks me for pardon. What? Unbelievable. To live years of bitterness and silence. And by the way, people inching ever closer to the grave and not willing to forgive. Gracious people are generous in their forgiveness. And do you know what I base that on? The forgiveness of Christ. How many know he's generous in his forgiveness? I hope you know that. He really is, he really is. All right, he is also just. The scripture says this, that God will by no means clear the guilty so God's grace is not sweeping something under the rug. God's grace is dealing with it in a just manner, but in a manner that is bathed in his grace. Did you know it is possible to execute judgment, but to do so in a wrong way? Did you know that it is? Well, Pastor Monty, this whole thing, it's very cut and dried. It's black and white. Here's what you do. You know, you could do that, or you can help people. And sometimes you, you gotta do the right thing, okay? You have to do the right thing. But sometimes your approach can be wrong. And when you learn how to approach something with a heart of grace and a heart that says, I want to mirror God's approach. Hey, Pastor Monty, what is God's approach to judgment and justice? Can I tell you what it is? God's approach to justice is the cross. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. Was the cross harsh? How many, how many know it was harsh? 
Wake up, folks. How many know it was harsh? This is good stuff. How many know it was, it's good stuff because I think it is? How many, how many know the cross was very harsh, okay? That was justice, but that was also grace. That was also mercy. That was severe justice. But do you know who took that justice? God himself. Because the Bible says God is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That that was the Son of God and God the Son. And in Calvary, you have law and grace meet together at Calvary. At Calvary, you have justice and you have love. And these concepts are not antithetical to each other. Don't ever think that they are. And when I must do justice, I also love mercy. Okay, let's quickly go through some practical points tonight, now that you've been given a basis for this linguistically and from the scripture. Grace is seen in the lives of men. Number one, grace is not a license to sin. Romans 6.1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is God forbid. You can also look up Jude 4. Uh, when we talk about grace, that's not saying you can just do whatever you want. We'll get into that in a little bit more. It's never a license to sin. Point B, grace operates with the New Testament principles as opposed to legalism or the Old Testament law. How does grace function? Grace is higher than law. Now listen carefully. In the Pauline epistles, over and over again, Paul makes a comparison both to the law and to grace. Romans 4 would be a great example. Romans 5 would be a great example. And he also talks about the law and the spirit. And he says, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. More powerful than law is the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me to convict and regulate my behavior. That is why grace operates with the New Testament principles as opposed to legalism or the Old Testament law. It is not a writing of 10 more commandments that is needed it is grace and yielding to the Spirit of God. Point C, communication is the primary manifestation of grace or lack thereof. Gracious people are cautious in their communication. You should really underline that. More trouble is caused on social media with people saying stuff they ought not to be saying than probably any other. I just think we should just let it all out. What a horrible idea. What an idea that is so far beyond the bounds of Scripture. Communication is the primary manifestation of grace in my life or lack of grace. Gracious people are cautious in their communication. Doesn't mean they're not firm. Doesn't mean they're not clear. It doesn't mean they do not tell the truth or that they pour honey over everything. That is not what we're saying. But they're careful not to needlessly offend I'm often remember, reminded personally of the scripture, James chapter 3, that is directed towards preachers, where James says that the tongue is dangerous because in many things we offend all. Well, I've been guilty of that countless times, just fulfilling prophecy, folks. In many things we fulfill all. I never intend to be personally offensive. Now, I, I'll tell you, it's harder now than it's ever been because of this young generation that gets their feelings hurt so easily. I don't even, I, someone told me after I was preaching, they were laughing at me, uh, and they didn't mind, but they said, preacher, you're just filled with microaggressions. What? what? I didn't even realize how microaggressive I was being, and I tried my best to not be offensive, but uh, gracious people do not try to, to needlessly offend. They demonstrate respect and kindness. 
That's so important today. Clarity, but respect and kindness in what you say. They often, they use discretion and do not pass rumor and gossip. So one of the, one of the great faults of social media is someone hears something and they immediately pass it along. So many of you in the room probably are familiar with um, Dr. Clarence Sexton. He was the pastor of the big church in Powell, Tennessee and president of Crown College, okay? I received a text late last night that Dr. Sexton has passed away. I guess we should have announced that earlier because many of you are familiar with him, uh, the great Crown College and the great church down there. Um, he passed away. He had some kind of a brain issue of some sort. He's been hospitalized for some time and it took a turn for the worse in the last couple of days. When a friend of mine sent me that text, I immediately responded and asked him, how do you know that? How do you know that? And then he responded back, a friend of his is inside in the college and, and had this information so I could trust that. Do you know why, why Pastor Monty, why would you check on that? I didn't want to pass it along without knowing the factuality of it. Do you know why? I did that once. Well, probably more than once. Some of you might remember when I announced the death of Ron Hamilton, the great musician Ron Hamilton, in church about five days before he actually died. Yeah, do you know why, uh, do you know why that happened? Because between su Sunday school and church, someone came running up to me and said, Pastor Money, Pastor Money, Ron Hamilton just died. And I trusted that. They misread a Facebook post, okay? And then I announced it to the whole church, and then he's still alive. And then I had to come back and say, no, he didn't die, he's still alive. And what's worse, I know his son, uh, Jonathan, and I had to go to him uh, when I saw him in person and apologize for announcing that. This was some months later when I saw him in person somewhere and apologize for it. He didn't even know that I had, but I felt so guilty about it. Uh, be very careful. Use discretion. Do not pass rumor and gossip. Gracious people are careful with what they say. One's demeanor is a secondary manifestation of grace or lack thereof. Gracious people generally maintain a pleasant countenance, carry themselves with confidence, and reflect very open body language, okay? How many of you can tell by the way a person carries himself if they're mad at you? Can you tell? Yeah, yeah, you, you can sure tell. Or if they're angry and defensive and they're, they're very tight in their body language. And some people march around that way a lot in their lives. Well, that is an indicator, an, an, an outside indicator, that they are not gracious people. Gracious people can be pleasant in their countenance. Non-gracious people tend to display anger or dissatisfaction on their faces. They can be cold, tense, and have an aggressive bearing about them. Now, I'll tell you folks, that should not be your reputation. If you've ever lived in a place where there was a bully in the neighborhood, everybody knew who that guy was. Everybody knew who the guy with the bad attitude was. Everybody knows who the guy at work who no one wants to hang around because he's unpredictable. Everybody knows who that person is. What does that person lack? A sense of graciousness. Now, if they claim to be a Christian, it is a contradiction in terms to have a non-gracious attitude. Well, Pastor Ronnie, I just think I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna say it like it is and I don't care whose feelings get hurt. That's never the Bible way. Hope you heard what I just said. Never the Bible way. You can be firm, but you can be gracious at the same time. Graceful people tend to default to mercy rather than condemnation and judgmentalism. Gracious people mirror God's requirement to man. What is, what is it that the Lord requires of thee, Micah 6, 8? To do justly, listen to me, do the right thing. 
Do the right thing. To do justly and to love mercy. Did you see that? We're commanded to do the right thing, but we're also commanded to love the spirit of mercy. Does everyone see that? By the way, great point for parenting. Great point for parenting. You want to do the right thing with your kids, but you want to love mercy so that your kids can always say, dad was fair, mom was fair. They loved me even when they had to correct me. Look at that passage again, Micah 6, 8. Do justly to love mercy, and then this joined with it, to walk humbly with thy God. Some people who don't know what grace is usually have an inflated sense of self-importance or pride that is oftentimes, when in a Christian context, a spiritual pride. Point F, graceful people demonstrate God's grace in their lifestyle. Now, I've replicated this whole verse so you can see it. Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now look at that. Grace teaches what? It teaches right living. Grace is never a ticket to licentiousness or diving into the sins of the flesh or of the spirit. But grace is something that teaches me that there are things I'm going to deny. Ungodliness, worldly lust, that I should live soberly or with a serious attitude, righteously in right relationship to God, with God and man, and godly mirroring God in this present world. Grace is not a free-for-all. Some people in the evangelical world think, well, man, grace is just do whatever I want to do and God will cover it for me. No, no. The grace of God teaches us that there are boundaries, that there are limits, that there are things that we don't want to involve ourselves in. That's what grace teaches us. Why? Because grace is fundamentally transformative from the inside out. I can give you a bunch of rules to follow, and you can check them off and say, did that one, did that one, I missed that one, but okay, did that one. I can do all that. That never transforms. What transforms a person is when the grace of God teaches my response, not only what I will embrace, but what I will reject. And part of the sign of having God's grace in your life is, is that in your life, in a practical way. We demonstrate God's grace in our lifestyle. It doesn't mean a person's perfect, but it means they have God's grace in their lifestyle. Um, look at point G. Grace allows for preferential differences in practice among Christians, Romans 14. Read the whole passage yourself, but it's crystal clear. We're not all going to agree upon everything. Do you know what? Allow for some grace. Someone is, quote, unquote, a little more strict. Someone is, quote, unquote, not as strict. Romans 14 is crystal clear. If a New Testament principle is not violated, we, you know, someone wants to celebrate Christmas. I think we all do here. We, we got them trees and things like that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Pastor Wall did a lot of that. It's beautiful, Pastor Wall. I'm, I'm all about that. Well, Pastor Money, I'm, I'm just against Christmas trees. Well, just overlook it then. I know no one here is like that, but is it possible to overlook it? I mean, unless you can show me a Bible verse in the New Testament that says I can't overlook it, then you should overlook it. That's part of getting along with people. Okay, Christmas time is coming. You're going to be with your family. Guess what? You're going to have to overlook some things. That's fine. Why do we do that? Because we're Christians. Gracious people know how to do that uh, in regard to places of preferential differences in practice among Christians. And then point H, grace reflects Christ. Now, I, I love this. The Bible says this, 
For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Which one is superior, the law or grace and truth? Grace and truth. Grace and truth is superior, and it reflects Christ. Legalism alienates people from God. Legalistic parents often alienate their children from God and the church. And I'll tell you, I'm not going into details, but I'm dealing with something not related to this church, not related to this church, of a case where legalism went to seed in the most unbelievable fashion. I won't go into it. If I did, you would be stunned. And guess what? Children provoked to anger. Children, by the way, the Bible twice says children are not to provoke, parents are not to provoke their children to anger. And you can do that by overemphasizing the legalistic view, the rules and regulations. You can do that. Pastor Monty, I run a tight ship until the ship sails out the door. Until the kids get old and they'll not speak to you anymore. Now let me make, I'm going to be careful what I say here, but I think it, it bears being said. Nothing in my parenting should estrange my kids from me permanently. Now they, they might get irritated about something, but estrangement's a dangerous thing. By the way, if a parent finds himself estranged from their kid, they need to do everything they can to build back that relationship. Uh, I'm not gonna, they're gonna come to me and they're gonna repent and, they're, and, and unless they do, it's, it's over. That's wrong. That's anything but gracious. Your kids were given you by God to love them, kind of like marriage, for better, for worse. You know, do your kids, do everything your kids do, does that make you happy, every single thing they do? No way. No way. Okay, but they're still your kids. At the end of the day, you love them. You try to build a relationship. Well, Pastor Monty, they need to approach me. You know what? No. You're the parent, okay? And a parent has a natural love for their kids, and that parent should be pursuing the relationship with kids, even if the kids have been estranged. And, and many good parents face this for a period of time in their lives, but the good parents never, ever, ever stop pursuing that relationship. Even if the kid runs, the good parents never do that. Grace attracts people to God because only grace meets people where they are and guides them to a better place. Think about, I'll close with this thought, think about the message of the gospel. It begins this way, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The good news starts out with some pretty bad news. Pastor Monty, that's discouraging. We're all sinners and we can't do a thing to fix it. You'd be right about that. The good news is God extends his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and everything who he is in his character. God extends that to us. And God says, here it is. Do you not find that attractive? You should. That's incredibly attractive, especially if you acknowledge the depth of your personal depravity and your sin and your failure against God, for God to just say, I'm gracious. For God to say, here are my 10 commandments, Moses. You broke the other one, so here's a new batch. Here are my 10 commandments, Moses. It's the law, and you'd better keep the law because these are not suggestions. These are 10 statements. They are 10 commandments. Here it is. Now, Moses, I want you to remember something. Because you're going to fail, because your people are going to fail, 
Because these 10 commandments are gonna be written in stone, and you're not breaking the second set. They're gonna be written in stone, but you're gonna break them. After he gave that law, he said this, Jesus Christ standing before Moses. Very crystal clear in that passage. Jesus standing before Moses says, by the way, can I tell you who I am? I'm gonna proclaim my name to you. This is who I am. I, the Lord God, the Lord God Almighty, I am gracious. Do you see it? The immutable law of God given on tablets of stone and then Jesus stands and says, I am gracious. Let me tell you something. For people who really understand themselves, that is hope. Someone said, Pastor Monty, God's grace isn't mentioned much in the Old Testament. <laughs> you haven't read the Old Testament. God's grace is from cover to cover, and that is a message that people who understand themselves and their own personal failures and who've struggled to have a relationship with God, but they're just not good enough, or they fail over and over again, it is the message of grace that attracts them because it is the deepest need of our hearts. Father, thank you for your word and for just looking at one Bible word tonight that is so beautifully illustrated in the person of who you are. In the Old Testament, gracious to a fault, with very deeply erring people, the people of Israel. In the New Testament, giving yourself as a blood sacrifice on the cross, not for your friends, not for people who loved you, but for people who were your avowed enemy. That is grace. Help us, Lord, then, to understand that we should reflect grace in our personal lives and our dealing with people. Help us, Lord, to understand that when we don't, we fail to reflect who you are in both the Old Testament and the New. And I pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit would help us to take this thought to heart. And so tomorrow, when we're under a little stress or pressure or something irritates us or we're just in a bad mood, Father, help us to think about being gracious. And I pray your Spirit will prompt us to that response that is glorifying to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.